As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Peko Banyaya should already be absolutely miles ahead in the 2023 MotoGP World Championship. And the fact he isn't is entirely down to an old Banyaya habit of crashing. But this is getting strange now. Banyaya suggesting that his crash in the lead of the Austin MotoGP race was down to his Ducati actually being a bit too good? Uh, I'm Matt Beer, this is the Race MotoGP podcast, and with me to try to unravel Banyaya's situation, the absolute crash fest of a weekend in which about half the field fell at some point in the main race and everything else that happened over the circuit of the Americas weekend are Simon Patterson, who has stolen another commentary booth at the Austin circuit to record this podcast, and Valentin Hurunchi. So I think we should get straight into the, the not just Banyaya's crash, but the seemingly bizarre explanation. Pecco himself said, uh, you can call me crazy for suggesting this is the reason why I've fallen. Um, I'm, I'm going to do that. I think it's a great, it does come across as an absolutely crazy uh, excuse for crashing out of the leader of MotoGP race. Simon, yeah, what, what's your thoughts? You, you were listening to Banyaya say this. What was your take on it? I mean, we should caveat that by saying that everyone had a theory today on why there were so many crashes. Because uh, I think out of the 22 riders that started the race, 20, uh, 10 of them crashed. So it, it was a crash fest. It, it was messy out there. And uh, the, there are theories ranging from bumps to high wind to temperature changes to tire pressure to Bagnaya's admittedly absolutely unique theory on this. Um, but it is one that we, we kind of put to the other Ducati riders afterwards and they said that he wasn't completely crazy. So yeah. th- there might be something into it. Um, essentially what he says is the bike is too good in that the bike is too stable. The bike is not giving the sort of feedback that you need whenever you're right in the knife edge of, of you know, between glory and disaster. Um, so, so he's getting confident on the bike. He gets then too confident on the bike. He pushes too hard and he falls off without any warning, which it, like, it makes sense um, despite the, the sort of initial craziness that, it is to hear a rider complaining that his motorbike's too good at the minute. Um, th- there is some logic to it, but like, how do you go to Ducati's engineers and say, okay, guys, make it worse? <laughs> like, like, how do you find a way out of that problem? Well, this, yeah, Banyai's own request was less stable to you know, put some more aggression back into it, but it feels like 
you know, Ducati spent yeah, most of the last few years working out how to tame its incredible power delivery. Now through electronics, through aero, it's done that. The other thing that makes this a slightly strange, a slight, not suspicious, maybe that's too harsh a word, but one of the, the reason I felt a bit sceptical when hearing Banyai say this was, okay, like you say, Simon, there's logic to what he's saying, but Banyai has had a habit of this. You know, his, his 2021 title bid fell short because of falls. His 2022 successful title bid had to be a massive comeback after too many falls at the start of the season. This, this just feels like something that Peko does at times, especially under pressure. No, it absolutely does. And it also feels like afterwards going to the media and saying, well, I don't really understand what happened is also something that Peko does with alarming frequency. Uh, look, I, I'm not saying his theory is is wrong. I did, like the, as, as Simon says, the other writers it was put to didn't dismiss it out of hand. Uh, at the same time, the, the two guys who followed behind him uh, Alex Rins and Luca Marini, from what they saw of the crash, they felt he was a bit too tight to to the curb. But watching it from replays, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure it looks like he's taking a massively different line to, to Rins. Marini also did say an interesting thing that in that corner, Bagnaia was just routinely much faster than all the other Ducatis, apparently, and maybe was just a bit too on the limit and made a habit of being on the limit to where it didn't even feel like anything particularly risky. That could be it. But, you know, Ducati will certainly, it'll need to have a look, if even if only to, you know, keep Banya placated into, into his theory of making the bike less rideable. Well, probably not less rideable, but maybe less stiff. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the one thing that kind of backs up the theory that this was a bit more typical Bagnaya than anything else is the fact that Alex Rins was coming. He was hunting him down and he was putting the pressure on. Um, and I, I, I can't help but feel like that played a role in it, that played a factor here. Because, you know, we have seen these sort of mistakes in Bagnaya in the past. Whenever someone's chasing him, um, whenever there's a rider catching him. Uh, ironically, it's also the kind of mistakes that in the past we've seen Alex Rins make. Um, and both of them had kind of looked like they'd gotten past it. But coming straight off the back of last week as well, where he crashed out of a, a fairly comfortable second place, it just makes you wonder. Um, the one thing I will say about Rins today is that, or about uh, Bagnaia today, sorry, is that he, he was a completely different guy after the crash than he was in Argentina. Um, in Argentina, he sounded genuinely upset and confused and rattled, actually. You know, his confidence sounded like it had taken a massive dent. Whereas today he did actually sound angry. Yeah. Um, he didn't sound like someone that had been knocked back a bit. Um, maybe that is because he genuinely believes his theory. Maybe that's because it's a coping mechanism, um, whatever. But but he did sound, you know, self-assured. It was an interesting weekend because if I saw it, his saw it. But even, you know, looking on a Friday practice pace... It, honestly, it took one glance at the timesheets to say, oh, Pecco's got this. Like, this has to be his weekend. This has to be maximum points. Uh, whereas in Termas, the weekend was a bit eh, and he sort of actually had a bit of a gift in the wet race because otherwise I think he maybe should have taken down, taken out like a, a sixth place and a fourth or third place. Instead, he was on for second. He lost it, but, you know ups and downs, swings and roundabouts. Whereas here it was just, yeah, it was just a perfect weekend, suddenly ruined. 
and I can I can understand the anger in in that regard. We went to this sort of third phase of uh, Banyaya psychology since he's been a works Ducati rider with, with crashes. We had 2021 against the odds, nothing to lose really. So you could semi shrug off the crashes because he was having to come from behind anyway. Then last season starting as massive favorite, but the bike's not quite where he wants it. Then everything falls apart, produces the amazing comeback. This year, it's the, the psychology, psychological situation he's in is massively dominant bike massively dominant personal performance as well because when he's not falling off he's riding incredibly well with such a margin over everyone else and anyone who could be beating him to a title on on merit is injured or is out of sorts for you know technical reasons in their teams it's his 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 challenge now is basically don't miss a massively open goal and it just he's got a lot of races to still hit that open goal and it's you know still not that far behind the championship even but it's just a little bit unnerving that he's, he seems to be trying to find a way to, to shoot over the top of the bar. I mean, he showed us on Saturday what he's capable of with an absolutely just dominant sprint performance. I, I think we, we watched Saturday's race and we immediately thought, oh man, it's going to be a long season watching this guy do that over and over again. Uh, so, you know, thank you, Paco, for keeping the championship battle more interesting. Yep, uh, that, That's appreciated as people that have to write about it. Um, but... Yeah, I think the other thing that will help him out after this weekend, the other thing that, that he'll kind of use to maintain his own confidence a bit is the fact that he wasn't the only one that crashed in the race. Uh, it was an absolute crash fest. And and like I said, the, there's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, but the, the kind of common denominator, the kind of common word that was mentioned by pretty much everyone who crashed apart from Peko uh, and Alicia Spagaro was the wind um, and how much it was pushing them. I mean, it's also just outside of the outside of the reasoning. In terms of the wind, I think Banyai said that in that particular corner in turn two, he felt it was actually aiding your line through it. Although, honestly, many other riders did say that the turn two wind was a problem. So I wonder if he looks looks back at the data and maybe reassesses that a little bit. Uh, but in terms of you know, in terms of Banyai's confidence, we, we we should also obviously mention that in terms of the points, he's fine. Yeah, he should be light years ahead. Instead, he's just right there in the mix. Uh, none of his rivals are here in any meaningful way. I mean, the only guy ahead of him in the championship is Marco Bezzecchi, who just didn't have a, a very good weekend. Or I should say, he had what you would describe a bad weekend if you thought Marco Bezzecchi was a full-on title contender, which I think even Marco Bezzecchi himself doesn't really think. He didn't have anything for Banyaya pace-wise, all weekends and that you know that's going to be the case for a lot of rounds this season so yeah in terms of the points pecker's absolutely fine he's still huge favorite for this title but as you know as he puts it only only so long that you can get away with this people will start scoring maybe he's also fortunate that you know now we have the sprint so somehow having managed to crash out of podium positions in two out of out of three races Banya still has like a lot of points on the table but yeah, you know, he's okay now, but there is going to be <laughs> there is going to be a limit to how much you can do this. Yeah, Banyaya said himself after the race that he was he was in a way lucky that he's in this situation this year where anyone who could be making his life difficult has, has got a much more difficult life of their own right now. Is you you know, obviously Bezeki is leading the championship. I think we're all agreed that it would be a bit of a miracle if he stayed there regardless of what Banyaya does. Is there anybody else that you two 
you know, if if you're in Banyai's situation and say he crashes at Hareth as well, who should he be getting nervous about? No one, really. That's the thing. No one. <laughs> and I know we, we, weekly time dimension at Satellite Bikes can't win titles. Um, I, I can't see anyone on a factory bike challenging him, and I can't see anyone on a satellite bike who has the the week in week out consistency to to challenge him. Because like, let's be honest, Bagnaya has a whenever Bagnaya has a bad weekend, half of the satellite guys who you would consider him as uh, you know potential rivals also have a bad weekend. Like, it was a disaster today for Jorge Martin. It was yeah. mediocre for Bezeki. It was uh, you know largely invisible for Zarco. Um, Rins won, but do we really think that he's going to do that again in an LCR Honda? No chance. Mark Marquez isn't here. And Bastianini isn't here. Fabio Quattararo, sure, he was on the podium, but it's the first time this season. If Bagnaia stuffs up this championship, he's got no one to blame but himself because there's no one right now who looks like a rival to him. Bagnaia's floor, like pace floor in terms of performance is still plenty good to bring home good points which is i think not something that you can say for almost anyone in the field right now in 2023 like quartararo's pace floor and especially one lap floor is terrible it is absolutely terrible and he's go it is going to you know to haunt him uh in in rounds to come we'll get to we'll get to quartararo later obviously um in terms of the guys who are out there right now actually fit like have all their body parts intact which is important um i like Jorge Martin might be pretty close to him to perform in performance, but he first of all was ill all weekend, so that's another thing that you know Banya has going for him. Here's another person who's got a fitness issue, and also just had an inexplicable, needless early race crash. It just makes you roll your eyes. And you know, there's Maverick Vinales and Alicia Spargaro at Aprilia, who you know they're both reasonably quick. Vinales in particular in practice looks closest to Banyaya more often than not but they just find new and novel ways every time to not score the points so I nobody else is ready to win this championship so I think we're facing a bizarre situation where Banyaya can end up notching up some kind of record for how many races you can crash out of and still be championed by an enormous margin at this rate looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So when Banyaya fell, he did it with a Honda all over the back of him. And obviously, this being the circuit in the Americas a few weeks ago, you'd have predicted that to be Mark Marquez. Mark Marquez wasn't here. But still, in Marquez's absence, we had a competitive Honda winning a MotoGP race in the hands of Alex Rins 
And for the first time since Cal Crutch those days, the LCR team, which is just, for me, that's an absolutely lovely, feel-good, wonderful result, but one that I, I would have put no money on whatsoever, even when Rins nearly qualified on pole, even when Rins was Harry and Banyar early on. Alex Rins was great at Kota, and that, you know, that was mentioned repeatedly this weekend, even really before the start, and was backed up fairly early on. I mean, Alex Rins has won at Kota in Moto3, Moto2, and MotoGP. The MotoGP win, the, the, the one before now, the Suzuki one, also took the leader crashing out. But still, you know, at, at Kota, when Mark Marquez is there, it takes something to happen to Mark Marquez or somebody else to win. So that's fine. I don't think that's that's really says anything. Um, but he was also sort of cranky coming into the weekend. Just generally, there was this crankier situation going on to where you would be forgiven for wondering whether he's not entirely happy with the terms of the arrangement. Um, so he's, you know, because Mark Marquez is injured, Rins has had the Marquez version of the Honda chassis available to him, which I don't think he used this weekend. Well, I think he tried it, but I think he prefers his more normal version. But he also wanted to try the Juan Mir version of the chassis and said that Honda wasn't giving it to him, even though it could. And just generally, he, he, he wanted Honda to use him more, which is a somewhat familiar refrain from Honda riders sometimes. And it's, you know, it's weird to hear it that early into the season. And now it's a completely distant memory because it doesn't matter at all. Like, that's forgotten. He's now won a race. He's now won, actually won a race on the Honda. He's won a race on the Honda and he's not named Mark Marquez. You know what the last time was? It was uh, 2018. And since then, Honda won 24 times. Each of those 24 wins was Mark Marquez. Nobody else wins on this bike. Now they do. That, that you know, that's going to overwrite a lot. And I, I think that's going to buy him a pretty long leash at Honda too. I think he's going to get that new chassis if he wants it after this. You have to think, first of all, that Mark Marquez is sitting at home today furious about what's going down. Oh, like yeah. He's got to be so angry watching Rins win on his bike at his circuit. Um, cause he would have absolutely thought that he would have, you know, won by 10 seconds today if he'd been here. Um, and it, it's, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's easy to agree with that. Maybe we should all be stacking a huge amount of money on Rins to be on the podium, at least in Saxon ring. Cause maybe Mark Marquez isn't as great as we all think he is at these two special circuits <laughs> and it's actually the Honda, but I doubt that. Um, but you know, the thing, the takeaway for me about this weekend is uh, you have an LCR Honda rider on a factory contract who starts the weekend mourning that he hasn't got the latest and greatest parts from Honda and then goes and wins the race <laughs> and that placates him for a few races. Like, are we in 2018? Is this Cal Crutchlow? Because that is so textbook Crutchlow that uh, you, know, you couldn't make it up. Yeah, this does sound familiar. I, I understand why Honda aren't giving him everything he wants because at the end of the day, he isn't their number one or their number two rider. Um, I also get that Honda aren't giving him everything he wants because I think at the minute Honda are so absolutely confused about what's going on that they don't necessarily know what they want to be doing. Like We've referenced three different Honda chassis and there's a fourth one because there's the Calix chassis. So there's the Rins chassis, there's the Marquez chassis, there's the Mir chassis, there's the Calix chassis, and who knows what Takanakagami's writing. <laughs> There's a lot going on inside Honda at the minute in terms of development. And uh, I, I do kind of understand why they're not trying to overload the riders by giving them everything all at once. Um, 
I, I, I think Rins is probably not in the worst situation that he is that he could be in. I think that he'll absolutely be happy with the situation that he's in for at least the next few races. Um, but I also think that, you know, I do get his point because I think Honda maybe could be using their test riders or their, their satellite riders to test stuff a little bit more. And, and it's not on Honda to see them not doing that. Uh, latest on the Cali chassis apparently is that it didn't run in the test where it was supposed to run because they're doing some checks on it now or something like that. Um, in terms of Rins, what, what you said, Simon, really stuck with me, even though it's inherently obvious, but Alex Rins being Honda's third rider, Alex Rins is, is too good to be any manufacturer's third rider, right? Like that, that feels, well, okay, that doesn't feel apparently totally obvious to everyone, but it feels relatively reasonable as a thing to say to me. And, you know, coming into the weekend, I was thinking that he must really feel quite bad about not being on a Grassini bike, even though that's a year old bike and, and the Honda he has is not year old. You know, the Honda he has is supposed to be closer to work spec than the year old Ducati, but you, you know, year old Ducati is still clearly quite good, pretty good. But after this, I'm also like, there, there are a few factories who could really could use Alex Rins because Alex Rins is really good. I mean, the thing to remember is that we're only in this situation because of a decision made many thousands of miles away from where we are this weekend some months ago. And Alex Rins should have started this season as Suzuki's number one rider. That's what's forced all of this to happen. Um, there's been a lot of debate already tonight in social media about, you know, did Repsol Honda pick the right rider to be the number two to Marquez and Mir? My gut feeling is still that, yeah, they did. Because I think Mir is is more what a factory team maybe needs right now in terms of, well, lost factory team in terms of development. Um, I understand why people think the opposite, because at the end of the day, he's crashing out while, uh, while you know, his former teammate and, and pretty much equal at Suzuki is, is winning races. But... The whole situation at the minute, I, I know that Mir's not, or that Rins isn't happy with Honda at LCR, but it sounds like Rins isn't particularly, or Mir isn't particularly happy with Honda at Honda either. Um, and that's, you know, kind of indicative of the bigger problems there um, and how you, maybe there needs to be a, you know, a bit more, it almost sounds like there needs to be a bit more done on keeping everyone happy than on bringing new frames every weekend. That, that they need to start working with what they've got and who they've got, which is, you know, it's not the first time we've said that about a manufacturer, an orange manufacturer in the past, although maybe not Repsol Honda. For, for me, it just feels, you know, it just feels wrong that Alex Rins' contract timeline doesn't line up with, say, Yamaha's. Because I, I just, I can't, I can't stop thinking Yamaha because, yeah. you know, it's not going to happen because Alex Rins is on a two-year deal right now and might not want it anyway. Who knows? But he would be uh, clearly a major player in that whole conversation if he was available, surely. L let's be completely honest. If Alex Rins can win on this Honda, Alex Rins can win on the current Yamaha as well with the same level of frequency. You know, it, Different it, track, it, probably, though. Uh, probably. Yeah, not necessarily yeah. at this track. But you know what I mean? If yeah. he can win on the Honda, he can win on the Yamaha. The, the guy is super talented. I mean, he won at the, on the Suzuki at tracks that the Suzuki shouldn't have won on. Um, we know that he can force a bike on the right occasion. And yeah, I think he would be a lot closer 
If he were in a Yamaha right now, he'd be a lot closer to Fabio Quadraro than Quadraro's current teammate or any of the people who have been speculated as Quadraro's potential future teammates either. Val's looking at me skeptically. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, dangerous sounding Rin skeptical, which I'm really not at the moment. I, I As I've mentioned a few times in the podcast, I, I was a massive Rins fan early on in his MotoGP time and then just was like, oh, can you stop doing really daft things? And then end of last season, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I get why he's num- effectively number three at Honda. He's the only one of that three who is not a MotoGP world champion. And at the time, Honda was picking up you know, unemployed Suzuki riders, Rins hadn't actually yet fully sustainably proved he'd got over how he'd spent 2020 and 2021. And he could be trusted to not cycle into a van and not crash out of endless fourth places. You know, at that point, you know, Mir was the sensible person to put at Repsol. Um, but looking at the situation now, you, you're both absolutely right. Rins is really, really, really making it work as he did at the end of 2022 on the Suzuki and as he's doing now at, at LCR. And I think the interesting thing is here, okay, he's in the lower pressure situation. He's kind of slightly under the radar at LCR. No one's expecting him and LCR to lead Honda's recovery or to be winning races. But hearing what the other Honda riders were saying this weekend, it's partly it does sound partly like he's got the the riding style that's working for this Honda, but he's also actually getting his head around what needs to be done. It's not like this Honda naturally suits what Rins how Rins rides a MotoGP bike. He's actually just mastered it. I'm, honestly, I'm still not entirely sure. I still think we have to see Harris and more tracks because I think outside of Kota, the evidence that Alex Rins is really on top of the Honda compared to Juan Mir, I think, is shaky. That's. Kota, the Kota factor looked pretty strong to me this weekend. That's not to take anything away from his performance, which was you know, clearly brilliant and amazing. Um, Mir's not that far back, generally. I think on, a, on an average track, I'm, I'm not sure he's behind Rins. He's just having more teething troubles and weirder teething troubles and maybe feeling the pressure a bit more. That, that would be my guess. He suggested he could be on for for a top four today if he didn't, you know, if he didn't start the weekend weak again in terms of in terms of his feeling with the bike because he couldn't he then couldn't find a way Frank past Frank Morbidelli in the race tried to do something silly to overtake him fell off. Uh, it's funny that he complained about his top speed relative to Franco Morbidelli, which, yeah, brave new world. <laughs> Strange so Somebody, somebody <laughs> yeah. is envious of Yamaha on the straights. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't quite that complaining. I'm, you know, exaggerating it for drama. But yeah, I, I, I look. I, I wrote after Portimao that I think people should buy low and sell high on Mir. You know, allegorically speaking, or whatever. I still maintain that. I think he's shown enough in flashes to where I'm, I'm fairly confident he'll figure this out. And he's also so young. Um, but this Rins result also, like, you you have to change your priors a little bit. And maybe maybe he does have something special figured out. And maybe for some reason his, what was described as a Moto2-ish riding style works at least works in in certain places at least works in in places like like this one which was you know hot and very very sketchy very bumpy very difficult and people weren't getting their braking right at all so they were hammering on the brake and just not getting it stopped which honestly Rins also did in the sprint at one point but you know still um i i think what we saw when Amir first arrived at suzuki is that it took him a long time to get comfortable on the bike took him a long time to get things working. It took a long time to get ergonomically comfortable. 
Uh, and I think that process is still ongoing at Honda too. Um, and it, once things click, we'll see a bit more rapid progress. The way we did with him in the second half of that Suzuki season, right up until the point where uh, the bike broke down on him or the bike failed on him and he had a massive crash that uh, basically ruined the second half of that rookie season. Um, it's just going to take a bit of time. And unfortunately for him, Alex Rins is putting a bit of time pressure on him. Not that there's any contracts or anything up, but it, it just makes it tougher. It yeah. just makes it harder to, to be motivated whenever your former teammate in the satellite bike is is winning races. Now, not also not just not questions you want to answer from the media, yeah. really, particularly. Like, I don't think he's unhappy for Alex Rins or anything. Suzuki was pretty harmonious throughout their tenure, but it's, you know, it's just can't be too pleasant to, to speak about that while you're in the doldrums to yeah Joan Mir is a champ though he really like he he puts on a smile clearly every time even when things aren't going too well he's a very funny guy he's just generally amiable so that's good I just think Rins is now in a, in a great situation potentially for his future he can he can almost stay out of the biggest hassles of Honda get some great results he get tons of credit for not get frowned at too much if he has a bad result. And then end of 2024, when Honda's got so far to recover, I wouldn't count the Honda being back to championship spec by 2025. You know, he's going to be a very hot property when the next contract cycles up. Now, uh, that I think is a good chance to talk about Yamaha, which is the the team at the center of the rider market. Had some rider market developments this weekend around Honda as well, which we'll get onto in a second. But Fabio Quartararo finally got onto the podium, had his best chance at winning a race so far this season, but it didn't happen. And he ended up having to answer questions about whether Yamaha should be binning off its inline four and, and going for a V4, which, which is, one, is one of those things, um, perhaps much like Rins winning on LCR Honda when Marquez isn't here, that would have been unthinkable a few weeks ago, but... Yeah, what do you make of Yamaha's performance this weekend and uh, and, and Quartararo's feelings about it? Well, yeah, you said Fabio had to answer questions about the V4. He brought them on completely by by talking about how the Yamaha needs a massive change and how it's different to every other bike in the grid. What's its biggest <laughs> difference to every other bike in the grid? The set of the layout of the engine. I mean, that much is clear. He 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 said V4 without saying V4. I everyone I think basically understands that now a, a V4 isn't coming anytime soon i think that's also fairly clear from yamaha but also it just it has to be a little worrying that fabio quartararo is talking about how the bike needs a massive radical change after they brought a new engine in after that big much publicized big amount of work on improving the top speed like the way he talks they don't sound particularly close even when the the engine situation is ironed out a little bit the engine looked apparently worse here than it did in previous rounds in terms of its relative competitiveness but at the same time again you see you hear Mir being envious of Morbidelli and you you look at the race like they're no longer getting slaughtered on that back straight like completely slaughtered I mean uh yes Luca Marini overtook Fabio Quartararo for the second place in the race very easily on the back straight but he didn't do it immediately he shadowed him for a for a few laps so it's also a question of corner exit and mostly acceleration at this point. The bigger problem is that Luca Marini was faster. It was like, there's no, just generally faster, faster on pace, not just in one lap. Fabio Quartararo did not have the pace that you'd normally expect him to have. He was not a podium caliber rider this weekend. And he was still quite comfortably clear of 
Franco Morbidelli. Maybe their gap exaggerated a little bit by some untidiness on Morbidelli's side of things in sessions. But just just generally worrying because at least they, they seem to always have the, the pace to lean back on, right? The race pace. And everything opened up to win today. And nah, not even particularly close. No. I mean, I thought there was a point, whatever. I thought that there was a, a chance that he'd be able to, to sort of pull in Rins and then we'd at least see what would happen, but it just, just didn't pan out. Um, you know, just to, to re-emphasize something you said, Val, the problem isn't top speed. The problem is all acceleration. And like corner exit grip and acceleration has been the Yamaha woe far more than top speed has for like Vinales Rossi days. Like this is a long existing complaint. Um, and... It's getting to the point now where I think it's been exaggerated even more because the other guys are doing so much more with uh, aerodynamics. So, so, so much of your corner exit now is because of the way that your wings are set up and the way that the bike is, is creating downforce for that. Yamaha can't do that. They can't go to that sort of high drag, high downforce setup because then it takes all the engine power gains that they've made this year and more versus the V4s. And they're just caught in this like vicious cycle of we can't go faster because we don't have the the engine to do it. We can't put wings on to go faster because we don't have the engine to do it. And realistically, the only solutions that they have is they either have to roll the dice and hope that MotoGP decides to ban aerodynamics tomorrow, which is incredibly unlikely, or they have to start considering a V4 engine. now. It's, It's the only two ways that I can see out of this. Again, that might change, but from what Lynn Jarvis told German publication Speed Week in the off-season, a V4 ain't coming until the new regulations cycle, which would be 2027. That's, that's a lot of time. I, I genuinely think that the chances of there not being a Yamaha team in 2027 are as high as they are of them not or bringing a V4 in 2027. Like... They can't continue to do this with the money that they're spending and the writer's caliber that they have signed. Can you can you really see them like continuing to just struggle for, you know, 24, 25, 26? I mean, I, I probably can, but yeah, I know. I know we've, we've had this Yamaha exit discussion before and we'll have it again, I think. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it, the engine configuration is such an ingrained philosophy, and you know, Yamaha's got away for so many years with not having the peak engine performance. Now, ironically, it has got the peak engine performance. It's it's another element that's not not working. I guess as well, though, if Yamaha has to switch to a V4, that would be such a radical change. Okay, it's got new engine expertise with uh, Luca Marmarini there. It's 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 not it's not quite as simple as Yamaha. Yamaha's existing personnel having to learn V4 technology from scratch, but it's an enormous deficit to all these manufacturers that have lived V4 MotoGP engines forever, basically. So when they talk about not bringing anything in before the new rules in 2027, that makes a lot of sense to me because they need to be just pounding around with V4s in test bikes in Japan for a few years to even have a hope of hitting the ground running with, with a MotoGP race version, surely. They, they need a satellite team in 2026 using a V4, don't they? Yes. That's what this calls for. Just a satellite team at any point at all would do Yamaha a lot of favours right now. And it would also give it somewhere to place top rack Razgatlioglu 
if it wanted to. I mean, that was another. This is where the Yamaha rider market situation moved around a bit this weekend. Um, World Superbike hero Razgat Lioglu had another test, and another test that didn't sound like it was that special, really. I I bumped into someone in the paddock who's in the know about this, and they were like, "I can't believe he's done that. That's that's he's like career suicide with this test." And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, the lap times, the lap times were bad. Um, and, and yeah, he did a, a single lap that was sort of two and a half seconds off the, the pole record at Hareth. But it seems like uh, the majority of the laps that he did over the course of two days, which is about 100 laps, according to Yamaha, Boston and Jarvis, were in like Moto 2 lap record territory, not Moto GP lap record territory. Ouch. It was slow. Um, it was really, really slow. And... Yamaha, you know, we're, we're kind of upbeat about, ah, oh, you know, he needs more time, he needs more time. But the, the kind of the, the coded message in all of this was very much that we're not going to give him more time because we can't. We don't have a satellite bike. We've got nowhere to put him. We're not going to, you know, continue to sabotage Fabio Cotteraro even more by putting someone who's even slower than Franco Morbidelli in the other side of the garage. Yeah, it's, I mean, Lynn Jarvis spoke to, multiple various outlets and multiple interviews this weekend and the message was fairly consistent which is Toprak is not ready and it'll it'll take a fair bit to get him ready to a level where he where this switch can seriously be entertained and that is not Yamaha's priority which to me makes 100% sense now Linjaris also said that the priority now given what Franco Morbidelli showed at Termas is seeing the same from Franco Morbidelli in more weekends and re-signing Franco Morbidelli. Um, Kota was not termas, Franco Morbidelli was not right this weekend, but we'll see, you know, still a bit of time because potential Franco Morbidelli replacements were also not so good this weekend. Jorge Martin taking out Alex Marquez. Um, I just, you know, it. let's see, because we don't, obviously we don't have the the lap times on a timesheet for us. We can't read them. We can't be 100% sure. But it makes total sense to me. And, you know, I've never been one who found even an iota of logic to the idea of Toprak Razgatlioglu coming into the Yamaha factory team. Why? Why would why would you take that punt in particular? That's just, that's not how things work in modern MotoGP. If you want to take like a real proper punt, well, first of all, you test everyone, I guess, but you go to Moto Two. I mean, that's that's the pathway. That's where you get that's where you get your diamonds right now. No, no hard feelings to top rack, but that's this is not what he's been preparing for. And just generally, he is more work than other options you may have. There are, you know, there's always going to be more currently successful MotoGP riders under the current formula than there will be works rides. You can you can get someone who's already been on a MotoGP podium instead of having to spend 24 months or whatever trying to get top rackers Gitlioglu to a level where he will be on a MotoGP podium. You can get someone who's already won MotoGP races in the form of Jorge Martin. You know that's that's the level of who else is available here. Yes. Yeah, but like you said, Val, Jorge Martin didn't advertise himself spectacularly well again this weekend. No, but he. He's, he's 
is less of a gamble still. Like, obviously, yeah. if he wants to come, you still 100% do it 100 times out of 100, I think. Uh, he also was, you know, he was on the podium in the sprint after having fever that was really bad two days before. Like, he didn't have a horrific weekend. He just did another one of those Jorge Martin mistakes that you really don't want. But he is fast. Yeah. And maybe, look, if, you, if, if your priority is also to get Fabio Quartararo a fast teammate whose data he can reliably look at, I mean, that's, that's Jorge Martin, man. Go Go get him. Yeah, and you know, uh, Martin in a in a settled got the factory ride situation, rather than having to prove himself against other Ducati people and that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe that would be the maybe that would be the, the change he needs. Yamaha is boxed into this really awkward position with the contract cycle, with Morbidelli's kind of inexplicable struggle. The fact, okay, I know you said let's ha- let's wait and see about Morbidelli, but right now the evidence is a completely anomalous low grip circuit that you're not going to have many of the rest of the season. Morbidelli looked great and still didn't actually kind of get the job done in terms of a podium, and then back to a more not that normal but normal-ish track, and he's, he's just nowhere again. It's he as much as Lynn Jarvis, I can understand why Lynn Jarvis would say, "Look, Frankie had a good weekend. Let's let's make him the priority again, especially in light of the top rack test." Morbidelli sadly is not Yamaha's solution to to the to its current problem. And it was also it was also a low grip track, Kota. Like everybody said, grip not great this weekend, and you know surface not great, bumpy. We didn't see anything amazing, but we saw honestly the level we saw from Morbidelli. I think if you look close-ish, it was maybe okay, maybe. Yeah, I know the, the the headline results are pretty poor, but if if you look a bit close, like there's maybe something there. But we have to see high grip, and I'm I I don't think what we'll see will particularly like I suspect. But yeah, you know, let's let's find out. You know, there's still time. But if if I can get Jorge Martin, I get Jorge Martin. That's my advice to Yamaha, who are no doubt listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jorge Martin for all the escapades he might get up to is going to give them more speed than what's your description of saying Val maybe okay if you look closely <laughs> it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle a run it's only for the fans after all it's only pressure you got this adidas Uh, you mentioned how low grip the track was. Uh, this was this was quite a ridiculous race to watch in terms of every time you look back at the screen, someone else was falling through a runoff area. Well, was it, what was the actual stat in the end? 11 out of 22 had a fall at some point in, in the Grand Prix? I think it was nine. I think no. nine is the correct answer because we had... We had 13 finishers and one of the non-finishers, Raul Fernandez, it was a technical issue. Ah, yeah. So I don't think he fell actually at any point. One of the non-finishers, or one of the finishers did crash and remount though, in the form of Binder. Yeah, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm counting him because, you know, yeah, yeah, I think. I, I counted 10, but either way, it's a lot. It's a lot. If, <laughs> if, if, it's, if we're losing count of the number of crashes, it's yeah. like, it's a fairly bad sign. Why did that happen? Okay, well... I, I, we've mentioned the wind. The riders start the weekend criticizing the Kota surface, which is an annual thing. But there didn't there didn't seem to be a complete kind of th- thematic. This is the reason why we all why we all fell, or, or, or was there? 
Uh, I, I don't think there was a, like a consistent thing, although wind was brought up pretty overwhelmingly, and obviously the the, the quality of the surface has been a, a talking point throughout. But it's also just, it was a really difficult weekend that was, you know, specifically highlighted as being the most difficult when this new format was introduced. So it's also entirely possible that people were just sort of running out of focus. I think that's, that's for me, that feels quite likely. Um, bit too many crashes. Thankfully, none of them particularly severe. There's, you know, there's this really nice thing about Kota this weekend is that you just kept watching really slow and goofy tip-offs at turn 12 after which, you know, at the end of the back straight, after which people were just picking the bike back up and continuing to ride. That was pretty nice. Only one problem was Alex Marquez got his leg trapped between two Ducatis after, you know, Jorge Martins fall also took him down. And that also came a day after Alex Marquez crashed after puking in his helmet. So he's just, he's had a lovely time. So a huge bummer because he's actually really quick this weekend. I think may have been on for a podium or maybe even better. I think that's the worst bit about it for Alex Marquez is that it looked like there was a podium there. Um, it, it, it seemed to try and build a narrative of what went wrong for the weekend and why there were so many crashes. It, it seems like, so there's always been this quota bump problem, which we know about. It's because it's got a weird sort of underlying clay that moves when it rains. So that's always an issue. There's always going to be bumps. The circuit have tried to fix the bumps in their defense, and they've done that by like grinding down some corners and resurfacing some corners. Uh, and what that has meant is that there's like, I think Peckle Bagnet described it as four different asphalts. Um, it, you're, you're like constantly changing surface from one corner to another. And I think that creating weird grip that changes turn by turn, along with the fact that the bumps are still there in some places, and then the fact that the wind picked up just meant that people were like experiencing things a bit differently. So uh, like one of the persistent complaints was uh, Bagnaya said that the wind to turn two was useful to him, but some of the others said it wasn't. And it seems like it was useful and that it was pushing you into the corner, but it was also helping to offload the front tire. And then there's a big bump. So people were going over the bump with the front tire a little bit lighter than it had been. And oh look, you're in the gravel trap. Um, it's quite telling that the wind picked up as the day went on and that there weren't that many crashes in Moto2 and Moto3 um, compared to even what we'd expect in a weekend. Um, they were like relatively sedate races. And I think that, you know, the wind probably, it, it wasn't what caused all the crashes, but it was what tipped the level of safety or the level of grip over the edge to the point where people were falling off all the time. Um Regarding the Alex Marquez crash, it was like a prime example of why circuits designed primarily for car racing are sometimes not fantastic for motorbikes because he ended up hitting the wall on the outside of the track because he slid trapped between those two bikes forever because it's big asphalt runoffs that, that F1 cars like. Um, whereas if it was a track that didn't have an F1 race and, and its main event was MotoGP, that would probably have been a gravel trap. Uh, which is not ideal, but it's not something we're going to be able to change because, you know, everyone is king. Also, honestly, maybe we should have seen a crash fest coming when on Friday everybody was asked what the problem spots were at the track in terms of bumps. And like everybody named some different corner, like uh, about 60% of the layout were name checked. It was wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's fairly standard issue, Coda, as Matt says, complaining about Coda bumps is tradition. 
So while we had a, a, a messy main race, the other distinct thing about the weekend was we had a really, really civilised sprint. Whereas the first two weekends of the season, the sprint has been the absolute mayhem lunacy where everyone tries to you know, win the race in the first 30 seconds. It, was this just a case of everyone's kind of got the idea now that you don't have, you know, there's little to be gained by going completely insane on a Saturday? Or, or was, there, was there more to it than that? Are we going to see sprint lunacy back in, in place in the Hareth? So, riders are split on, on that, and so am I in my head. Like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether really people, people have genuinely chilled out because the specter of a crazy sprint at a track, a track like this maybe put the fear of God in some people. But I, I, I do lean more towards the track-specific maybe way to look at it that, you know... It, because of how difficult Kota is, because there were some tire concerns, people weren't as gung-ho and maybe a little bit more confident about being able to get in the position they need to be in over the duration of the race. But it's it's hard to say because at the same time, for some reason I'm now slightly more of a believer, though not yet fully, into the idea that people have settled down just because the fear... <laughs> Sprints have been a little scary, and I, I'm sure riders aren't fully immune versus that. But yeah, in the Kota sprint, we saw there's like one incident that I can recall, which is you know after Alex Rins got turn 12 wrong and returned to return to the return to the track, he took a front wheel of a Yamaha Fabio Quartararo to his back, and nobody noticed it. I think remarkably, and the rest of it was perfectly chill. I, I tend to go with the theory that it's track specific simply because I don't think you can suddenly make 22 MotoGP riders be quite chill. I think it's just not <laughs> yeah. in their DNA. Um, they are not risk adverse people by definition. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's the nature and it's a little bit the layout. Now, this is a long lap, so it's one of the longest of the year. But there's a big section of it where you don't do any overtaking, really, because through that that fast fluiesis section, there's not really much in the way of overtaking spots for bikes. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think the fact that there's not a huge opportunity to be dumb and the fact that it's physically demanding kind of stretched it out a bit more than than uh, any belief that it's got anything to do with the... Uh, intelligence and uh, <laughs> fear levels of MotoGP riders. They're not paid to be smart. They're not paid to be smart. I, I love the phrase opportunity to be dumb. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think I'm on the on the side of thinking this was a complete fluky one-off. Not so much fluky, like you say, the track doesn't lend itself to, to madness in quite the same way. But, you know, if... If what happened at Portimao with the, like injury level and and shunt level in the sprint didn't make people calmer at Termas, and it it really really didn't, then you know nothing nothing's going to change. I think sprints are going to be like this at any circuit where overtaking is is a little more a little more natural. Well, I don't know. Honestly, it makes me think maybe they just have like a rolling start or something, one second apart, all of them in the sprint. Also, because the report was much more pleasant to write this time around. <laughs> like I had most of it done by lap eight of ten. It's nice. I appreciate that. Just just wait until the last corner at Hareth in the sprint race there. Yeah. And but then we'll know. Uh, this is it. Hareth is, is, is just prime for that kind of drama in there. And we should have a few of the absentee the, the, a few of the absentees back, some quite key ones as well, um, who've 
yeah, Mark Marquez has been quite a protagonist in this. He's been quite a protagonist in the season's narrative for someone who actually hasn't raced in many laps of it as well. A, a, a slightly rusty injury recovering Mark Marquez at his home race is exactly what a sprint race needs to calm it down even more. Mm. Especially after he's seen another Honda win as well. At his track. At his track, yeah. Look, you know, let's just touch upon Mark Marquez before we go, because obviously if he was fit to race this weekend, he would have had a freeze on his double long lap penalty. So he would have actually been like properly in contention for victory. Uh, the MotoGP Court of Appeal has ruled that while they're not quite ready to decide on the merits of the appeal, they can at least say that Oh, I think they said prima facie. Is that Latin? I, I can't read Latin. I'm sorry. Basically, at first glance, Honda's case does at least seem to have enough merit to be properly seriously looked at. Also, because might establish a precedent there. And also because, well, because of everything, because of how, how that whole situation played out. So we're still awaiting on a resolution, but Honda scored an early win there in that particular legal proceeding. But that early win may have been squandered by Marquez not being fit enough to be at Kota. Not that I hope Honda doesn't mind too much because on the race. Yeah, I think the return of Marquez in those circumstances, the imminent return of somebody else competitive on a factory Ducati, it, it, yeah, it's it's a really really tantalizing prospect. This this season has already given us a lot more than we thought it might when we went into it thinking Banya is going to probably pretty much walk this. He, he's sort of walking it and falling over a bit, and everyone else is doing enough crazy and surprising things to give us an absolute ton to talk about every week. Walking it as in as in walking through the gravel path <laughs> after the bike has <laughs> has disconnected itself from yeah. him. That damn pesky, very stable bike. Take him by surprise with its stability again. Thank you for thank you to the MotoGP season. Thank you to Banyaya for giving us plenty to talk about like that. Thank you to you listeners for your company. And thanks, Simon and Val, for uh, yeah, persisting with this podcast quite late at night for everyone except, except Simon in Texas right now. Um, next week is another Toby Moody special episode. We'll be back in, uh, in, in European time zones for Hareth, along with Marquez and Bastianini. We'll see you all then. The Athletic.